Welcome into the 304 Sports Podcast. I'm Colby Bertram, joined alongside Kyle Marshak. And back again after a little bit of an absence here as football season wrapped up, Carter Hill. Uh, and I'm very happy to have both of you on. Uh, how are you both doing today? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm excited to be back and really excited to have my boy Carter back too. Gentlemen, happy new year. So excited to be back on the pod. So excited to get back to campus in the next few weeks. A lot of stuff going on at Virginia Tech and a lot of stuff going on in the professional sports world as well. I think we're going to talk about a lot of that today. So good to be with you all. Absolutely. Definitely very excited to have you here. And it's definitely been, as you said, a very exciting uh, time in the sports world. Uh, had a lot to cover the last episode. And we did tell, uh, tell you, uh, listeners, that we did have this special episode coming in. And we do have it with special guest with the uh, Carter Hill being a special guest here. Uh, now we are going to talk about baseball, but that is going to be our last segment here as we're going to go ahead and start off with a little bit of uh, Virginia Tech College sports here uh, before we uh, go fully into baseball. So to start that, we're going to go ahead and look here at the college football end as we haven't been able to touch too much on it on for Virginia Tech. But there's been a lot of big news happening this offseason. Um, a lot of the staff has been starting to get lined down. A lot of big names, a lot of positive names that has really had the uh, pokey Twitter uh, like rumbling and really excited. Um, but then on top of that, we also got two new quarterback uh the two quarterbacks to transfer to the team. So uh, how about them, Carter? Uh, Carter, how about Jason uh, Brown and Grant Wells? Uh, what do you feel about both of them? Well, this is a huge move for Brent Pry and reported offensive coordinator Tyler Bowen. These two guys started games in 2021. They have a wealth of experience coming in, and they make that quarterback room instantly 10 times better than it was last year and makes it much deeper than it was a year ago. Coming into the year now, I mean, both guys are very talented guys. Grant Wells has three years of eligibility remaining, was the starter for the last two at Marshall. He's been one of the best quarterbacks in Conference USA. Jason Brown, the whole you know storyline has been third time's a charm. He comes to Virginia Tech. He starts his career out career out at St. Francis PA spends, I believe three seasons there before he transfers to South Carolina and started a couple games there last year, helped beat Florida and Auburn at home and then transferred out before the bowl game, but contributed to the Gamecocks miracle first season under Shane Beamer. So mm-hmm. definitely a, a nice little connection there. And, you know, he's a Virginia guy. He's from Fredericksburg and both guys, they're coming in with solid numbers. They're coming in with a solid reputation. Like I said, the, they, uh, they immediately make that quarterback room 10 times better and it provides some competition as well. I mean, now all of a sudden looking on paper, I think Grant Wells may have Jason Brown edged out just a tad, but even if Jason Brown is not the starter, bringing him in is absolutely crucial. We saw the drop-off last year from Braxton Burmeister to Knox Kadem to Connor Blumerick, and that was a huge issue. So, you know, now have depth in that quarterback room and to now have two guys that, you know, possess certain qualities good enough to start at the power five level is going to be huge for Brent Pry and that offensive staff. So these are two massive moves. I can't emphasize enough how big this was for the offensive side of the ball for Virginia tech and Hokie fans certainly should be excited about bringing these two guys in for sure. Cause now you're looking at 
potentially Grant Wells, Jason Brown, and Taj Bullock, one, two, three. And that's a pretty good one, two, three if you're a Hokie mm-hmm. fan for sure. I believe these are two guys, young men that are also really excited to be here. Uh, I think uh, maybe even it was mentioned that Jason Brown, this is kind of like his ultimate goal, I think, was to end up at Virginia Tech. And then for someone like Grant Wells, uh, just to come here from Marshall's definitely um, at least a, a, a conference boost. So even give you a little bit more here on Grant Wells as uh, you're, you're possibly eyeing him here to be the starter for the 2022 season, though obviously quarterback competition um, – will go underway during the off season. Uh, though from his uh, 2020 season, to 2021, he took a huge step up in yards and completion and uh, also attempts with that uh, going up uh, over 170 passing attempts, which is absolutely ridiculous and to have a more completion percentage, I think is very impressive. Uh, but he did also increase a lot of interception, uh, a lot of his interceptions. Now, um, are you going to be nervous about that with his coming in here? Or is that just kind of due to uh, what what he kind of had to do at Marshall, kind of having to will this team in the game? Games. I could have said, well, wow, fun. To be honest with you, I don't know a ton about Marshall's personnel in 2021. I know they were seven <laughs> and five. That's about it. I know they finished second in their division in Conference USA. The interceptions, yeah, of course I can worry you. You know, Braxton Burmeister only threw four interceptions last year, which is pretty dang good. That's something that he didn't get a lot of credit for. So, mm-hmm. yeah, of course it may be something that can kind of worry you. But, you know, Grant Wells proved that he could be a very, very good quarterback. And really for him, it's about making the jump to the Power 5 level. That's really the big thing that he's got to focus on. He's still somewhat a young guy. You know, I don't know where he is academically, but he has three years of eligibility left. So, I mean, potentially, you know, who knows if he uses all those three, but he could be the guy here long-term for a little bit at least. So to bring him in is actually, is, oh, for sure. To bring him in is absolutely humongous. To bring him in is a statement by Brent Pry. And also one more thing I want to add about, you know, the two of them coming in at the exact same time. That's pretty cool that they coordinated their announcement at six o'clock. Exactly. Plus it shows that they both want to compete. They both publicly spoke with Andy Bitter of the athletic and like nice a look at the Roanoke times. And they both spoke about how much they're, you know, willing to embrace the competition, which actually is a little bit rare in the transfer portal era. So certainly excited about bringing both of these guys in. I think the coaching staff is as well. And they certainly are. And both those guys, like you said, Definitely looked like they wanted to be here, and especially Jason Brown. You talk about a guy being so public about wanting to play at Virginia Tech for yeah. years, and now he finally gets his shot. So this is going to be a cool dynamic to watch at the end of 2022, and it, it gives you a little bit more hope offensively based on where Virginia Tech was a couple of weeks ago when they went up to New York for the pinstripe Bowl. Absolutely. I mean, composition is going to breed a lot of success here. And speaking of success here, uh, to talk about probably one of the biggest hires that we have had, or, or at least one of the highest stated ones on our staff, uh, obviously Brent Pry being our head coach being the biggest. How about uh, Joe Rudolph here coming in as to be the offensive line uh, coordinator, I believe, coming in from Wisconsin, uh, serving there as, uh, I think, associate head coach as well as offensive line uh, between 2015 and 2021. Uh, I definitely have some intriguing things uh, to say, but how, how was your reactions here on this and how could he really improve the running game with how many good like or not even good great young running back recruits we have at this program particularly even being led by malachi thomas this last year yeah i think that's a massive move for brent pry 
arguably the most massive mood or most massive move, excuse me, that he made on his staff, obviously bringing in Michael Hazel too, is I believe his position is like director of recruiting or something like that from Penn state. That was massive as well. But, but Joe Rudolph was an absolutely massive pull away from Wisconsin. Absolutely massive. Like you said, he was their associate head coach, offensive line coach, their run game coordinator. He's coming here now as well. He used to be their OC. He was previously the offensive coordinator at Pitt. He was the interim head coach mm-hmm. at Pitt when Paul Chris went to Wisconsin before Pat Narduzzi took the job. So he's got quite a bit of experience. Before that, he was at Wisconsin as well. So two stints in Madison. His alma mater is Wisconsin as well. So mm-hmm. to pull him away from his alma mater and you know a pretty good That's program in the Big Ten is – yeah, it says a lot to, to be able to pull him to come to Virginia Tech – in what a lot of people view as a lateral move or maybe even potentially a step down. Both are sleeping giants. I mean, Wisconsin's had some decent years, but they probably could, you know, they were really, really good a couple of years ago, but they definitely still have a step to take up or they definitely still have another step to take to be where they want to be. These are two sleeping giants and two really good conferences. And, and, you know, you never can underestimate the power of, a program that is a sleeping giant that has the potential that Virginia tech has. And when they have the assistant coaching pool that they now do after hiring Brent Pry, you can bring in names like Joe Rudolph. Vance Weiss was a good offensive line coach here. Joe Rudolph, the experience that he's coming in with is it's, it's never been seen before at Virginia mm-hmm. tech as an assistant coach, the places that he has been, the longevity of his time at the power five level, the amount of guys that he has coached that went to the NFL. This is a massive, massive move. And I, I think Brent Pry and, and company have to be pretty awfully excited about bringing him in because I think the Hokies will certainly reap the benefits and Justin Fuente never really could bring in a guy like Joe Rudolph. So now Whit Babcock mm-hmm. and company have invested the resources to bring in a guy like him. And yeah, he is at the end of the day, just a position coach, but that that's also, you know, a pretty big role as well. So the Hokies should definitely be excited with this move. Yeah, and even speaking of that, uh, as I was already talking about with the running backs, I do want to even mention this here as a big point. Wisconsin has been in an incredible running school for so long now. Uh, I believe Melvin Gordon was there before his time. Um, uh, but as I was even looking up some stats here, uh, you have Darren, I um, I think we messed up his last name, but like or- Oregon Wale or Oregon Wale. I, I, I don't remember exactly how it's spelled, but he's a current NFL running back. Corey Clement has been an NFL running back. Jonathan Taylor, we all know him as possibly being the MVP for this year. And he already had a young freshman stud in Braylon Allen, who was doing really well last year. And to specifically even touch up on this, avoiding the uh, 2020 COVID year, uh, during Rudolph's time as the head of the running game, he only had two years um, that he didn't have his number two rusher going for 500 plus yards on the ground, which I think is pretty impressive. But then he also had um, only one year without his top rusher going for a thousand plus yards with three of those years being 2000 plus yards via Jonathan Taylor with one of those years being 2,227. So I don't know how much you have to say on that, but I think, I think if, you know, the, the sky's the limit basically for our running game with the talent that we have, uh, not only uh, as the players, but as the offensive mind that is Joe Rudolph, it's just very exciting to be able to have someone like him on this offense. I'm, I'm looking at the numbers right now. 
the Badgers averaged 212.3 rushing yards per game in 2015. That's just one of his years Joe Rudolph had. Yeah. That's fifth among not just the, the conference, but power five squads in general. So this is a dude who could totally change the shape of a school that really needs some ground game for sure. Yeah, definitely something that we love here, uh, like ground and pound at Virginia Tech. And I think it's something we're going to be able to look forward to for years to come. Uh, very excited to talk about some of those college football things here, Carter. But how about we move into the other exciting college uh, college board here, um, at least across the nation, in college basketball. And it hasn't been too exciting for the Virginia Tech Hokies as we're currently eight and six. Definitely not where we, uh, as if we're like where the fan base uh, or really the media expects them to be at this point. Um, but my first question comes specifically after his most recent performance and overall just kind of the season. Uh, I, I don't want to flack on him or anything. I do have stats for what I will say, but I do want to get both of your opinions here about Naheem Aline and whether he should continue to start here through this cold spell that he's having or if he should possibly get benched at least for a little bit. I actually think Naheem Aline should not get benched. I, I don't think Himalayan should be benched. Now he he is playing a significant amount of minutes. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you see his minute total go down and Darius Maddox get more minutes, which you're seeing a lot of tech fans, you know, press Mike Young on right now. But I think Himalayan is way too good of a basketball player to just sit down on the bench. They just don't have a lot of depth behind them. And and mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's definitely been going through a cold spell and they're not getting a lot from him. That's for sure. And they definitely need more from him. That's for sure as well. He'll be the first one to tell you that. But I don't think benching him is necessarily the answer in this case. Because I don't know, you know, we don't know how Darius Maddox would perform in that role. Darius Maddox is mm-hmm. or Darius Maddox is still a, a very young guy and he's still only averaging probably off the top of my head, I don't know, I don't I don't have it in front of me. He's probably only averaging 10 minutes a game. Maybe you want to see him Maybe you want to see that go up to 16 or 17 in a lean's minutes go down to 27 or 28. Mm-hmm. I definitely could see his minutes in or minutes decreasing and Maddox's minutes increasing, but I don't necessarily think that Naheem Aline's benching Naheem Aline is the answer. That's probably what I'm trying to say. No, he has not been good shooting the ball recently. You know, he knocked down, I think he's scored five points in the first three minutes the other day against NC state and just didn't respond from there, but he does some other things well offensively, like moving the ball, you know, being in position, knowing the offense a little bit better that maybe Darius Maddox does not. So I don't know. I, I wouldn't necessarily bench him just yet. I think he's just fine where he's at. I think Mike Young, you know, obviously they desperately need more out of him. But we'll see what happens over the next few weeks. I'm going to be a little more strict with this. You know, me growing up a Syracuse guy, I've seen really conservative, strict approaches for getting the best out of your players from Jim Beheim, who's a longtime NCAA great. And uh, if you look at it from Beheim's perspective, um, or I guess in this case, Coach Mike Young's perspective, what I think would work is, um, you know, possibly cutting his minutes in half, like you've described. Maybe you could get. Maddox up to maybe 20. Maybe you're splitting halves with him and Nahimeline, or perhaps you're you're getting them off and onto the bench. Um, 
in, in total. You know, so I, I do think there's ways to get the best out of your player. And Mike Young, I think by him cutting a ton of minutes out of the Himalayan kind of gets through to him that he needs to take a more practical approach to his, in, in my opinion, shooting or shot selection, because I think it's his shot selection and his lack of efficiency doing so that makes him the um, struggling player that he is today. I mean, in his last game, he struggled to put up any points at all against Duke. And I get it, it's Duke, you know, um, but at the end of the day, you got to get on the board. What are you bringing to the starting lineup? As of right now, he's bringing nothing. And I think splitting, if not getting him on the bench and giving most of the minutes to Darius Maddox, even with Maddox being a young player and lesser experienced, I, I'm not totally against that right now. You get younger guys like Sean Padula and David Gasson um, on there anyways. Um, entirely, I think a lot of the Hokies' issue is efficiency. You look at the first half, they were up towards 45% shooting from the field against Duke. They dropped 5% in the second half, and I think a lot of that had to do with the ball being in uh, Naheem Aline's hands. The other thing with Naheem Aline real fast is he just does not seem, to Kyle's point, as confident with the ball. His shot selection, like you said, if he is a wide-open three, the last few games he he has given up that shot. He'll kick it back out, or he'll kick it back out to Storm Murphy or Sean Padula at the top of the key. So, yeah, to your point, and I'm not, I'm not trying to move away from my point as well, but you know, to back Kyle's point up a little bit more, you know, whenever you see that, the confidence is absolutely derailed when you're not taking a wide open shot. And this is a guy that put up 30 points in the NCAA tournament last year against Florida. So we'll see. We'll see what happens when the Hokies go to UVA on Wednesday to see if there's any changes there. I mean, sure, it's, it's just very interesting and everything. And I, I will say this um, to uh, for Nahima Lean's e- even benefit here. Uh, we, we can all even agree that Storm Murphy did not have a strong start to the season. And it's not by any means that he's exactly the player that we expect him to be even now. But he's got a lot better. I think he's even got a lot more confident. I, I feel like that's reasonable enough to say. And it feels like he can really like get minutes out of the team. So after a cold streak, he was able to do well. And that's the same thing with Aline. And maybe you have to just pull overall, just have him take way less shots to where then he can just get that open, like whether it's open shots or whether it's just shots that he's more comfortable with to really get back in a rhythm here. But here's my specific thing, and I'm going to even point out on a lean in uh, going to try to even point out in general. First of all, if you're looking at Nahima lean here and uh, his time here at Virginia Tech, uh, obviously, as you said, Carter, this is the most minutes that he has had for the Hokies overall. Um, 32.6 minutes currently is his average, and that is almost four, uh, that's over four minutes more than what he was even getting last year when he was a starter. So it is a, uh, a very big increase. And with that, he has seen some success. He's uh, increased his defensive rebounds. He's very drastically increased his free throw percentage. Uh, he's been even more of a creator, uh, increasing his assist total. Like it's, it's not like he's been completely horrible. I'm not saying that Naheem Aline's a horrible player. What I'm saying is this, is that he's drastically ice cold. He's currently shooting just under 32%. And if you compare that to his last two years uh, at Virginia Tech, that is um, uh, the, with the percentages being just about 39% each time, that's about 7% less which isn't great, particularly for someone that takes a lot of shots for the team. And on top of that, if you look at his three-point percentage, that's about 32 and a half, which he averaged uh, just about 39 and 41% over the last two years. So 
that's another big step down from Aline. Uh, just a lot of uh, sh- uh, shots going uh, going off for him, including like those air balls. Um, to even have a more specific point here with this, if you're looking at the games, uh, with Duke, he put up nothing, as, as Kyle was even mentioning. Against NC State, he missed nine of his shots. Same thing with Dayton. Dayton, we barely lost that game. Wake Forest, it's not as bad, but he still missed six, and he only went one of seven. Like, in all of our losses this year, uh, Naheem Aline did not have a good game. 4-14, 7-16 was probably his best against Xavier, putting up 18 points. But uh, beyond that, it's 1-7, 1-10, 0-4, 2-11. I feel like he's getting uh, just he might just be taking too many shots at this point or forcing too many shots as you guys have even talked about. Um, This isn't even like a trend though, overall in uh, Hokie sports as I was, or at least in Virginia Tech basketball, as I was trying to find more of this uh, with how good this team was last year and some of the games that were missed, I I couldn't find much uh, specifically for his shot percentage really being um, detrimental, uh, at least in some games. Uh, I could have probably found a better word for that, but there was definitely a couple bad games last year, including the loss to Pitt, where he went one of eight, and the loss to Georgia Tech, which really shouldn't be happening this team, where he went three of 12. Um, but really, what I specifically want to look at here, uh, which is less of a Hemaline issue because he was more coming off the bench, I believe, in his freshman year. But really, what I want to look at is when we had our leading shooter of my freshman year. Uh, when he went on a gold streak, that being Landers Nale. Um, Landers Nale, uh, you, you guys didn't at least uh, have him as a, uh, for your freshman year, obviously. But for my freshman year, he was a stud. Um, he was going at the Maui tournament, and uh, he was able to just do big things, like taking down MSU, and then we got blown out by BYU and Dayton. Uh, we were relatively competitive against Duke at home. Uh, and you had some other good things for uh, him. And Nale started off the year looking like just an absolute star and that he was really going to be something for this team. But then January to March hit. And I say January to March, which is a long stretch. But uh, after, um, if you if you pull it up here, if you uh, guys are able to get to Nale's stats or if other uh, listeners are interested, uh, by Saturday, January 25th, so the end of Saturday, we went on a uh, through a 10 game stretch. We lost nine of those 10 games and Nale really did not have good performances. He had some double digit performances and he had one really good one where he put up 29 uh, as he was our leading man this year or, or like that year, but he went 414, 5 of 16, 6 of 15, 7 of 17, um, 1 of 8 against Duke, 3 10, 2 and 9. So not what you want from your leading player or like your leading playmaker at all. And Mike Young just kind of had to keep putting him out there. Um, he, there was some issues with, I think, uh, Nale uh, uh, otherwise. And then obviously he left the program after that year, but like he had a bad spell. And this isn't to say that Aline's leading toward this team. That's not true. Keve Aluma is. Um, however, Aline is one of the biggest pieces of this team, particularly one of the bigger scorers. And if he's going to possibly be ice cold, he's one of the best guys that we have from range. And if he just stays cold, there's not much that we're going to be able to do to redeem our season, particularly if we're a team that's kind of 
built on that three ball and we were built on driving and everything, obviously losing Radford and cone, just being huge losses. But basically my point is, is when you're having one of your top scores go on this, like uh, go on a cold streak and you're trying to force them to get off of it. I just don't think it's going to be helpful. And I think trying to light that spark into them or at least give them a little bit, like get them against a different shift to where they can possibly even do better. I think that can do the world a difference for a lead. I'm not saying you bench him for the rest of the year and have him come off the bench for the rest of the year. No, Aline's a great player. And I think Aline can do a lot of great stuff for us, but he is someone that during his time at Virginia Tech has had hot and cold flashes uh, pretty consistently. You talk about the Florida game. He was incredible there. He kept us in it, but then he'll have other games where, you know, as, as we've seen, he'll shoot two of 11 or uh, six of like 17 or some bad stat, like, like accuracy wise uh, or field goal percentage wise. So that's my biggest concern. It's less that, Aline's a bad player or anything. That's just not true. It's just more Aline's cold. Darius Maddox is someone that has really used his minutes well um, to actually give you the stat here, Carter. He's currently averaging 15 and a half minutes, but with those minutes, he's averaging 52% field goal percentage, 50% three point, um, and then a couple rebounds, uh, not even half an assist yet. But I think that Maddox in his physicality could provide something to the team that we really need right now. And I think Aline coming off the bench could be incredible for us. Um, and it, in a best case scenario, maybe Maddox starts to just be, become a stud. And then Aline's basically Jalen Cohn in getting incredible six man minutes and just popping threes for us once he's back in rhythm. But I, I just think that Aline needs to be able to get himself focused and get himself right and get off this cold streak. And I just think it's going to be worse if we force him to continue to start as many minutes as he has been. Well, like you said, with Naheem Aline, I mean, he he almost single-handedly moved Tech on to the second round last year. I think he had 32 yeah. points in that game against Florida. Yeah. I think he had 32. You may have to look that up. But I, I, I mean, think you're yeah, right. You're right with the Landers Nolly example. Landers Nolly, the second half of the year, was just chucking everything up. Yep. He was, and actually, to be honest with you, he fell off when his dad said he was going to the NBA at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. His dad came out and said he was going out to the he was going to the NBA at the end of the year around New Year's, and the rest of the year he very much fell off. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, now he's in Memphis, and now he's doing okay. So I mean, it worked out well for him. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, this team misses Tyrese Radford a lot. Jalen Cohn, oh, yeah. eh, not necessarily as much, but Tyrese Radford. I mean, he was a guy who could drive to the rim. He would go to the mm-hmm. basket. He was good in transition, and they missed that this year. That's for sure. I mean, they were one of the slowest running teams in the AC in in the in the country. I mean, they they just don't get up the floor very fast, which was which is you know the exact opposite of what they did late in the buzz days when they went to the Sweet Sixteen and really early on in the Mike Young days. And they, they just don't get up the floor very fast. And a lot of that has to do with Tyrese Radford leaving. Jalen Colton was a good player at Tech. I don't think he was irreplaceable. But now we are seeing sure. Tyrese Radford was a guy who you would have liked to have had on this year's team. But, yeah, they just got to get Naheem Aline going in whatever way they can because he's a big part of this team going forward if they want to get to where they want to go. 
Yeah, and that, and that goes back to essentially the main point is how does Mike Young handle this? And like I said, you know, uh, me being raised a Syracuse guy, I see it more from the conservative side where you pull away from his minutes and uh, perhaps you work, you know, more personally with him uh, behind the scenes. But that's getting really technical with it. I think um, a lot of it as a former athlete myself can be a mental thing. I, I played baseball and, you know, not that I ever played at a high level, definitely not D1. That's uh, that's for certain. But you know, in any sport, you're going to get streaky and there's inconsistencies. And that's both a mental and a physical thing with uh, the physical mechanics of it. And of course, the mental mechanics of it. Um, And so, like I said, there's two worlds of it. There's the side that you guys are definitely proponents of, which is that you allow him to shoot more confidently and get back in a rhythm. And that opens up the opportunities for him. Or you take away minutes from him, uh, which is what I'm definitely a proponent of. And seeing the work behind the scenes become a more or I guess you could say on the floor, a display of more efficiency and better shot selection and more confidence in his shots, even a, a lesser amount of time. So, you know, whether it's to bench him or to take away minutes, I think that could be a route of action. But absolutely, at the end of the day, um, I could see Mike Young very well in a different world, um, giving him just as many minutes and allowing him to be more confident in his shot. Maybe you have a, a weaker game or a weaker opponent coming up. You give him all the minutes he needs to get more comfortable on the floor. And yeah, maybe he walks away with 15 points and it was in a lot of shots, but he still walked away with 15 points, not zero this time. So there's definitely different routes that Mike Young can go about this with. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I mean, that is part of the thing as well here with NC State loss being so surprising, but granted we were out with two weeks with COVID, uh, for, for COVID issues. And I don't think it was just us. I think it was um, Pittsburgh last week that had issues, but I, I digress. Um, I think that Pittsburgh game with kind of how they played would have really been big for not only Aline, but the whole team. Um, I mean, in any case, it's just wishing the best, not only for Aline, but for the team in general, and just kind of that's the perspective, at least that I had of it. And obviously uh, both of your perspectives are, you know, very solid as well. And it'll be interesting to see exactly what Mike Young's going to do here as the weeks go on, particularly with such a huge opponent coming up in UVA. Um, but with that being said here, looking at the season as a whole, um, we were really looking at the team at the beginning of the year as a team that could possibly push for the top 25, a team that really had the shooting talent and everything that they could really be challengers in the ACC. But now we're looking at a team that's just a little bit over 500 and at the, like, absolute bottom of the ACC. So the the other question that I have here in college basketball, before we move on to MLB um, is, do you believe that this team can make a turnaround like Joe Lenardi does uh, as he currently has us the last team in the uh, NCAA tournament? Um, Or do you think that it's just going to be a struggle here for this team the rest of the way, as we might be looking towards a little bit more of a new era uh, with some of their crews we're looking towards next year? I think, of course, Tech can make a turnaround. Do I think they're an NCAA tournament team right now? No, I would say they're an NIT team right now. But why I say I think they definitely can make a turnaround other than the fact that they have talent on this team. And yes, there's a lot of criticisms going the way of Mike, you know, Mike Young and company right now is their schedule at this point has been one of the toughest in the entire country. They've played an extremely tough schedule and 
yes, the NC State loss was concerning, and the Hokies will never make this excuse, but they were coming off a week-and-a-half-long COVID pause where they got half of their team back the day before. So you're not in a good spot conditioning-wise or really in a good spot at all to play play a game. And, and that loss will hurt for sure. And that one is the one that makes you worry. But you look before the COVID pause, Tech was really starting to play well. It beat St. Bonaventure, who was the favorite to win the A-10 by 40 points down in Charlotte. And then you take Duke to the wire and Cameron, who's good enough to win the national championship. You're leading at halftime. And the schedule really, really lightens up the rest of the way for Virginia Tech. They have a really favorable January coming up. Going to UVA will be tough to win. It's definitely a winnable game. UVA is definitely down this year. It's always going to be tough to win in Charlottesville, but it's a winnable game. And then you got, uh, off the top of my head, I think you go to NC State, or you host Notre Dame. You go to NC State. Then you go to Boston College, and then you go to or host Miami, one of the two. Host, so, host um, Miami after Boston College. Yep, you so got Miami's it. playing really, really well, though, so we'll mm-hmm. see what happens there. But there's some opportunities for some wins there, for sure. And the schedule, you know, it, it really, really lightens up for Mike Young's team. So do I think they're an NCAA tournament team right now? No, I don't. But do I think they can be at the end of the year? I don't think it's I, – I don't think it's fair to say this team is – this team's season is done because the schedule mm-hmm. really, really lightens up. And the pedigrees of these guys playing shows that they're going to figure it out. So I would not count them out just yet. And I can't help but agree. I think, if anything, they're very, very far from done right now. Um, I mean, if you look at the man himself, Joe Lenardi's bracketology, Virginia Tech's listed as the very last team in right now. Um, now, do I think that's accurate? Not quite. But I do think that they're still a bubble team. Would I, would I put them last four in? No, I'd probably have them, you know, first four out or next four out right now just because of the bad losses they've had. But with that, they've had, you know, a high strength of schedule because they have what Every power five, you know, although that's more of a football term, power five team has. And it's what I call the power five effect. Unless your name's Gonzaga, you have the effect of having a high level of schedule. Every team you face is going to be a high level team. Even your non-conference, you have a couple games there where it's like, yeah, those are quality teams from outside the power five conferences. So they're always going to get that kind of leeway. Um, and you see it here in Joel Lenardi's bracketology for this week because Virginia Tech still ranked as that very last team in to the tournament. Now, again, do I agree with that? Definitely not. But do I think they are a tournament team? Eventually. Not quite right now. So I'm in the same spot as Carter. But again, you have to look at it big picture. You, you, you look at the team under a microscope and you see all the problems they have. But big picture, this is still a talented squad fighting for a middle of the pack spot in the ACC, although they've had a very terrible spot or start. Looking at it big picture, you see the weakness of schedule ahead, and this could be a team fighting to get a play in towards the end of the season. Oddly enough, I think a lot of us have been really saying this since Dayton, but quite literally this uh, game this upcoming Wednesday against Virginia, I think is the biggest game for our season, is really going to be a tell specifically on what this team can do going the rest of the way. Um, Virginia, um, last year in the only game we played against them, we had an incredible streak at home to not only come back, but also have a dominant-looking win against the Cavaliers. And this isn't the Cavaliers of old. This is a Cavaliers team that have had their own struggles this year. Um, currently just one game better than us at 9-5, and five, but they had their struggles uh, losing to Iowa, losing to James Madison at James Madison, getting absolutely destroyed by Clemson one week and then going and beating them by 10 the other 
uh, time they met them. So that was kind of crazy that they scheduled those games so close. Uh, losing to Navy at the beginning of the season was huge, as well as getting destroyed by Houston. Um, this has not been kind of like that same Tony Bennett team, and it's definitely a team that's kind of in a layover waiting for uh, those huge prospects that they are awaiting for the 2022-2023 season. Um, they do have some decent players, of course, still. They have uh, Armand Franklin and respect uh, Beekman and Kia Clark uh, and Jaden Gardner up there. Gardner really being, I would say, the definite best of them. Uh, has been a huge transfer. But this is still a team that I think is beatable, have shown they're beatable. And this is kind of a desperation time for Virginia Tech as you are now 0-3 in the ACC and you've got to be able to pick it up. And as Carter pointed out, past that, you don't have that difficult of a schedule. NC State beat us at home, sure, but they were still one of the worst teams in the ACC, projected to be one of the worst teams in the ACC. And we're going to have them after we have Notre Dame at home, which will be great. You have Boston College, not a great team. You do have a huge test against Miami, then you have a Florida state team that's having its own troubles after that. So I feel like you have at least this Virginia, Virginia game, depending on how we play, you possibly have uh, to uh, quote high school musical here, the start of something new for Virginia tech. And it's going to be really interesting to see what they're going to be able to do here. Um, It's the biggest game of the season. Uh, And I mean, you can say that for rivalry game, but this is genuinely like, this is the test, and I think this is where the tide can turn for this team. Ultimately, I think this team can turn the season around. They do have the talent. We we all agree with that. Our The bench has been looking a lot better than I think uh, even we would have expected this early. And I think that the starting five is still a pretty strong starting five. And as you point out, Carter, we've even seen against St. Bonaventure that they can pull off very impressive wins. But they just need to get their heads on straight. They need to get that confidence flowing. And they really need to show it here against Virginia uh, for me to fully be able to lock in and say, okay, this team can be an NCAA tournament team um, going down the rest of the stretch. Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely agree with your point saying that this UVA game is their biggest game to date for sure. Now, will will we be saying that in the next couple of weeks? Probably not because there probably will be another huge game coming up, but these next five or six games could make or break Virginia tech season certainly can break it. That's for sure. So yeah, this is a big test going to UVA. Like you said, this is the Virginia. This is not the Virginia of old, like you were talking about. This is definitely a beatable team. Virginia is not an NCAA tournament team right now either. They are playing a lot better, though, than they were early on in the year. They're playing miles better than they were the first month and a half of the season. I watched their game at Clemson the other night. No, Clemson is not that good. But Clemson just beat UVA in Charlottesville by 17 a couple weeks ago. Yep. So it definitely shows that the Cavaliers are improving and they're too well coached. No, they are by far not anywhere close to as talented as UVA is as close to a talented team as UVA has had in years past, but they're too well coached to just fall off and going to Charlottesville, like we talked about is a huge test going on the road is a huge test, but especially going to your arch rivals place. And the JPJ has not been kind to Virginia tech in years past. They've only won once there in the last 10 years. So it's going to be a test, but it's certainly a winnable game. And why I think it is one of the bigger tests of the season is because UVA is not elite. They are on the same level as Virginia Tech is this year, and you are going to their house. And if you can, you can pick up that win. 
it shows that you can still compete and it shows that maybe you're a little bit better than people are saying you are right now. Now, if you lose on the other hand, the Hokies are going to be in trouble because Mm -hmm. not that they're not already in trouble right now, but it shows that, you know, maybe you can't even contend with the mid-level teams in the ACC, the mid-tier teams in the ACC, which obviously Mm -hmm. is a huge issue this year. So it's going to tell us a lot for sure. And, do I think tech would I pick tech to win right now? No, probably not because UVA has been playing a lot better, but tech also will be able to finally get back to practice. So we'll see what happens after that. But do I think tech can win? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's a very, very winnable game for Virginia tech. And if they can pull it off, it will be a huge win for Mike Young and company. So with that being said, it's been definitely a pleasure to talk uh, Virginia Tech College sports. And with that uh, being said, we are going to go ahead here and move into baseball as we have uh, some pretty big baseball news here coming up. Uh, and as the listeners know, I'm not really the uh, biggest baseball guy, so I want to be able to listen and learn and hopefully be able to ask some uh, decent questions here when the time comes. Uh, but I will definitely let Carter and Kyle take it away here as we're going to be talking a little bit about the 2022 Baseball Hall of Fame. Absolutely. I mean, the ballot is hotly contested. And I think out of all the big name sports in the United States, the Hall of Fame for baseball is probably the most controversial as well as the hardest to get into. Carter, you know that very well. And this year we have an interesting ballot, a lot of new names, um, a lot of controversy with the steroid guys. Um, I think that begs the first question off the bat, Carter. Are you a pro or anti-steroid guy for the Hall of Fame? You know, Kyle, I am not a steroid guy in terms of putting guys that have been proven to use steroids in the Hall of Fame because I think in order to get into the Hall of Fame, you have to, throughout the entirety of your career, have shown that you can fairly do it. Now, do I think guys like Alex Rodriguez – David Ortiz has not been proven to have used PEDs, but it's heavily rumored. I think those guys will get in the Hall of Fame. Barry Bonds, of course, will get in the Hall of Fame. I am not a fan of voting for those guys because, yes, they had they they were once in a generation type talents without PEDs. There's no doubt about it. That's why they're going to get in, in my opinion. But at the end of the day, if you can't throughout the entirety of your career show, you know, integrity to the game. I don't think that necessarily earns you a spot on my ballot. Now you were talking about off air, not to digress from this point, you talked about putting guys into the hall of fame that maybe have had off the field issues such as Omar Vesquel. You know, there's plenty of rumors about what he did with his wife, so on and so forth. As bad as that is, I am willing to put a guy like that on the ballot because that is not an on the field issue. And I'm curious to get your take as well. Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, that's why it's so hotly contested is what criteria makes it. I've seen several different viewpoints. I've seen people who are fine with putting guys in the Hall of Fame um, that do steroids, but not fine with putting guys in the Hall of Fame that were slam dunk Hall of Famers. But, um, you know, a-holes off the field like Omar V. Scal or Kurt Schilling. Um, And then the opposite, guys who are not willing to put guys uh, who did steroids in the Hall of Fame. But guys like Kurt Schilling and Omar V. Scal are just fine to get in. Um, Me personally, if you have any baggage attaching to who you are as a person and what that represents for the game of baseball, you're you're off. So I'd say I have a more liberal and or, or perhaps conservative, I guess you could describe it, and strict approach 
approach to it. So, you know, just to spit out there on this year's ballot, we have a lot of new guys, um, but these are all the guys that I would, I guess, connotate as people who have baggage, whether it's steroids or a character clause. I mean, the steroid guys are easy. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, um, and Alex Rodriguez, I think are three guys right there that who, without steroids or not, our inner circle all-time greats. Clemens, steroids or not, I would say is probably one of the greatest pitchers of all time. And then the same to be said for Bonds and A-Rod when it comes to hitters. Um, alongside that, there's three guys who I don't see making the Hall of Fame just because they were Hall of Fame worthy, but not inner circle Hall of Famers. And they do have that steroid clause. And that's Sammy Sosa, Gary Sheffield, and Andy Pettit. Three guys who had great careers, but with steroids, it's just not worth putting them in. Without steroids, they're probably slam dunk hall famers. Um, and then again, on top of that, the two guys who have that serious character clause stuff, which is Omar Vizquel and Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling is definitely a hot button topic. And I want your opinion on this, Carter, before we get into what our ballots look like. Kurt Schilling literally asked the BBWAA this year to take him off the ballot. He will remain on the ballot. What do you expect to see in his percentage uh, this coming ballot? So Kurt Schilling last year got 71% of the vote. You do the math there, he's going to get into the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. Now, are some writers going to be turned off by his political stances and his off-the-field and social media views? Absolutely. That's that's inevitable. So, yeah, there still is some doubt he's going to get in. Personally, I think he will get in because you look at his career, you look at the numbers he put up on the bump, I just think he's too good to leave out. And like you said, we'll, we'll get into our actual ballots going forward. But, but yeah, the fact that he actually wanted off of the ballot certainly says something. We'll see if writers, you know, actually take that to heart. And I don't know. It's, it's an interesting topic. Kurt Schilling's one I'm definitely interested in talking more about when we reveal our ballots, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on that one as well. Yeah, you know, I purposely hid this uh, piece of information from you from before. Um, there is a website, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. There's a massive Excel sheet, which is verified by the BBWAA because uh, an associate of them, not a member of it, but an associate of them and a famous sports writer, Ryan Thibodeau, runs this site called the BBHOF and he runs an Excel sheet where he keeps track of every official ballot released. That is, you know, the, the big emphasis right there, released by BBWAA. AA uh, writers that are voting for the Hall of Fame. Right now, he's collected 36.5% of the BBWAA official ballots, whether it was released on Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, every a public publicized BBWAA ballot he's got, and he's wrote down the numbers right now, Kurt Schilling in his 10th year of the public ballot. This is has 58% of the vote. I would say that's a substantial drop as of right now. Of course, that number could absolutely skyrocket with the rest of the two thirds of the vote left. But I just wanted to, first of all, apologize for keeping that from you, but I need to see your reaction hearing about this website from Ryan Thibodeau, if you've ever heard of it, and then your thoughts on the percentage of votes right now for Kurt Schilling. And of course, we'll go into a lot of the other guys' numbers after our ballot. Well, I certainly think that, you know, proves one of the points that I talked about, about, you know, writers responding to either him wanting off the ballot, or in my opinion, more likely his views off the field. You know, it's no secret that he... You know, he has some interesting political views. And then he also, on top of that, he, I don't even know the right word to describe him. He just seems like a very outspoken, um, radical issue type of guy. And 
some of what he talks about is seen as so toxic and is seen as just someone you quite frankly don't want to be around that definitely can strike some controversy for sure. There's no question that he has struck some controversy into, into baseball over the last few years. You know, he was fired at ESPN. He ran for maybe Senator off the top of my head. He ran for some sort of political office, in Massachusetts, I believe. Obviously, like I said, he was fired from ESPN for some comments as well. So he's got a lot of controversy that surrounds him. And I think that reflects on how the writers view him. And it may cost him a spot in the Hall of Fame, although it doesn't actually really even seem like he wants to be there anymore. So we'll see. Yeah, you know, to me, I think if a man's asking to not be in the Hall of Fame, you don't put him in the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame is there to represent the best ball players on the planet. But what are you supposed to do when you induct someone into the Hall of Fame and he refuses to give a speech? I think that would be a really interesting um, outcome of this. And uh, I think that's what's in the back of the minds of a lot of writers, despite how dang good he was, which um, is another point of it that surprises me is that it's taken 10 years for him to get even close to being inducted. Um, that It's it's uh, just another topic that's been so interesting about it. But enough about the shilling, the Viscal all the steroid guys. Now that we've got the baggage out of the way, let's go straight into the ballot. Carter, I sectioned mine personally into three pieces. I've got four guys right now, and I, I chose to use all 10 of my votes. Four guys right now that I'm perfectly comfortable, no baggage, um, inducting into the Hall of Fame. They are straight up Hall of Famers. I've got three under their names that I think are borderline guys who deserve a look and you would really have to dig into the meat to see why or why not. And then three guys under that that I think are kind of a stretch but still deserve a look. So how about we start with your guys that you think are slam dunk Hall of Famers. Maybe it's five of them, six, three. Just your guys on this ballot for 2022 that you think are Hall of Famers, no baggage, and they have the numbers. Here's my ones that I would for sure put in, and I won't even categorize them as a slam dunk, but there's there's three for me that are for sure get-ins. Maybe there's a fourth one well, you know, that kind of, or as well, that kind of borders that one. But I would, I would put in Kurt Schilling. I would vote him in. I think he had way too good of a career across multiple teams, especially the Phillies and the Red Sox, the two that come to mind. Omar Vizquel. Yes, he has his off-the-field issues, but it didn't affect his on-field play, if that makes sense, like steroids maybe would. So I would put him in the, or I would put him in the Hall of Fame. Uh, another guy that I will forever campaign to put in the Hall of Fame that I don't know if he will get in or or not. He's been on the ballot for seven years. He's only received 46% of the vote. I would 100% put in Billy Wagner. He is six all-time in saves. No, the save leaders or the fourth and fifth save leaders of all time did not get in the Hall of Fame, but the longevity that Barry or that Billy Wagner did it, excuse me, across multiple teams. I think of the Mets number one, obviously did it with the Astros for a while too. And just personally for me, he's from this area. He's from uh, Southwest Virginia. He's from Tazewell. He's given a lot back to that community. Actually pitched at Division Three Ferrum College just right down the road. So the hardships that he went through to get to the big leagues, to pitch at the D3 level and make your way all the way up to the spot that he did is crazy. And I will forever vote for Billy Wagner to get into the Hall of Fame just based on what he did throughout his career and where he sits on the all-time saves list. To be clear, too, I would also have voted the guys in front of him in as well. Um, 
obviously Mario, Mariana Rivera, Trevor Hoffman, Lee Smith have all gotten in, but then K-Rod and John Franco were four and five as well. They are not in the Hall of Fame, but I would have voted them in as well. I think the closer position in the Hall of Fame, at least on certain ballots, is very underappreciated, and I think it should be more on certain ballots going forward. Dennis Eckersley is number seven overall, and he is in the Hall of Fame, so... I don't know. I think Billy Wagner is a definite yes for me. And then I go to Scott Rowland. He was a talented first base or excuse me, third baseman for a long time with the Reds and, and uh, blanking on the other team off the time I had, you may be able to help me out there. I always think of him. Go ahead. Sorry. The Phillies, the Phillies. That's right. I always think of him on the Reds though. I always think of him on the Reds just because hey, right, either way, either way he had, he had a solid career at both spots. Then I go to Todd Helton. Very solid career as well. Power hitter, guy who didn't strike out a ton. Guy at Colorado. Yes, he he performed at Coors Field rather well, but um, obviously there is going to be a lot of talk with Coors Field and the Coors Field effect. And, and for those who don't know, balls travel a lot further in, in Denver based on how, how high the elevation is there. So that'll be a talking point as well, but he would be on my ballot. Then I go to Manny Ramirez. I'm actually going to put him in on my ballots. And then for my final two spots, because I did use all 10 spots, I'm going to put in David Ortiz, even though he does have some reported baggage. There's nothing that is, you know, official there, but I would put him on my ballot. And then Andrew Jones, I'm actually going to put him on my ballot as well. So Actually, those are eight guys that I started off with. I missed the last two on the bottom of my ballot, but I would also put in Mark Burley. And as much as I want to put in Alex Rodriguez, I am going to stick to my guns about steroids. Now, Alex Rodriguez was a generational talent, no doubt about it. But I have to stick to my guns and I can't allow him in as well. I got to be I got to be partial. So with my 10th spot and. I debated even adding a 10th member because I think he's close, but I would actually vote in Jimmy Rollins. Wow. That's, that's a controversial one. And, um, you know, my, my ballot, when you go towards the end of it too, it's, uh, it's, it's getting funky with it. Um, my immediate reactions, you're not a steroid guy, but you're putting in Manny Ramirez. What was different about Ramirez? I know. And I knew you bring that up. I, I, I knew you bring that up. Obviously, same thing with with David Ortiz. Manny Ramirez, there are certain things about him that, I don't know. Yes, he did test positive for the, I don't know, human chronic, however you say it, in 2009. Yes, there there was some steroid. Actually, now that now that I'm thinking about it, because I kept A-Rod off, you did convince me in the conversation. I, I was considering putting A-Rod on there. I considered putting Manny Ramirez on there. I put Manny Ramirez on there. I took A-Rod off. So I will take Manny Ramirez off. You convinced me otherwise. So I will take him off in the middle of the conversation, which which I typically don't do. But like I said, I got to stick my guns. So I will take him off and I'll look for a 10th member while you're talking about your ballot as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, with the steroid talk, I think, in my opinion, if you want a guy to be a slam dunk Hall of Famer despite steroids in their resume, they need to be an inner circle all-time great. And you get that with guys like Bonds, Clemens, and A-Rod, whether you're on the bump or at the plate. 
Um, but from the other side, let's just start with my ballot. I don't think you did yours in any particular order. I'm going to do mine in a particular order. Um, descending order where number one is my slam dunk call of famer and number 10 is kind of a head scratcher. Um, number one, I think if you want to induct a guy who has practically no baggage and is an inner circle all time great, you put in David Ortiz. Um, you know, I don't often put in stuff uh, relating to the character clause that much because he actually, when he talking about wins above replacement is average at his position, um, the designated hitting position in the Hall of Fame. But think about the character clause. I mean, he he's heartfully named Big Poppy by Boston. He was an all-time great with the Twins. So he's a top three home run hitter for two organizations. Um, you know, on top of that, it's uh, a huge Hall of Fame feel to his career too, whereas there are guys who have put up similar numbers to Ortiz but had little to no Hall of Fame feel to their career, um, whether that's due to the character they have or the way they went about playing. Um, I think that it does have to do a little bit with who my slam dunk Hall of Famer is and who isn't. I have one more guy that I'm confident in saying is a slam dunk Hall of Famer, and I think is criminally underrated. You had him on this bout as well. It's Scott Rowland. That's my number two guy right there, a dude who is above average um, among Hall of Famers when it comes to wins above replacement at the third base position. He's in his fifth year. You should expect now that he's about midway or in his fifth year that he's going to get a lot more votes and then he'll probably plateau for another five years. So this really is an underratedly big year for him. But considering the ballot is so weak this year, who knows? Maybe Rowan can make it in. He was at 53% last year. He could definitely make a big jump. So that's my number two guy. These two guys, I wouldn't say are Hall of Famers, but still I'm very, very comfortable in voting them in. I would kind of compare them to other guys who were definitely deserving Hall of Famers, but not inner circle Hall of Famers like Larry Walker and company. I'm going to start with another guy who played a lot in Colorado, Todd Helton. Again, you talk about the cores effect, but Todd Helton doesn't matter what numbers you put up 312 for a career. And you're, you know, nearing 400 plus home runs. This dude could really rake. And again, Colorado, you want to talk about the cores effect. That field is freaking massive. I don't care who you are. If you're hitting out of that ballpark, you're legit. And again, in my fourth slot, my last dude who I'm fully comfortable with inducting, you and I both said it, this position, is criminally underrated and underappreciated in the Hall of Fame. It's the relief pitcher, Billy Wagner. I think he's an all-time great in New York. He was partially an all-time great in Philly because he had a couple of great seasons with them as well. So those are my four guys right there that I think are slam dunk, quote-unquote, Hall of Famers. Uh, your immediate reaction, Carter. I got to agree. I, I definitely have to agree. And just reading through my ballot, it definitely matched yours on the top half. Billy Wagner, like I said, I will forever campaign for him to get in. Like you said, the closer position is criminally criminally underrated. And I, I think he's a guy you just got to put in. Now, I don't think he is a guy that will get in. He he doesn't have enough of the votes where he's at so far to, to where he would have gotten in, I, I believe. Now, maybe he gets in in the future. We'll see. I think he's definitely a guy up there, but we'll have to see what happens there. Yes, I, I do like your Scott Rowland take. I, I really like Scott Rowland. I have remembered watching highlights of him for as long as I can remember. He was a guy that I, as funny as it is to say, I would always pick him up in 2K when I was playing, when I was like in middle school, elementary school. He was one of my favorite players to play with. And and like I said, I always think of him with the Reds. Obviously, you're a Phillies guy. You're going to think of him with the Phillies. He had a great, great, great career with the Phillies as well. So, He's done it multiple places. That's the other thing too, not to sidetrack. I think is very important. A guy that has done it 
in multiple spots, it shows how good of a player you are. It's hard to move from spot to spot and continue to produce the way you're producing. And of course, yeah, you can't hold that against guys like Mariano Rivera and Derek Jeter, but, but yeah, whenever you can do it in multiple spots, that that's pretty dang good. So, and yes, Todd Helton, there is the course effect, but like you said, that ballpark is massive. When we saw the home run derby there last year, it, it's still pretty tough to hit the ball out of the ballpark there. Yeah, that's for sure. So I do like the Todd Helton take. I like Billy Wagner. I like Scott Rowland. And then of course I, I, I like your top take as well with David Ortiz. I think you just got to put him in. Right. And now I have six guys left. This is where it gets controversial, Carter. So if you ever need to step in and ask me why or what, I'm not afraid to it. I want this to be a debate. So this is where, again, it gets controversial. I'm going to get one thing out of the way. I'm going to list a dude who is not on my ballot or two guys that are not on my ballot that were on yours. I am going for no Vizcal and no Schilling. To me, just to get Schilling out of the way, if a man asks not to be on the ballot, I don't think he should be on the ballot, and I'm not going to give him my vote. Although I do think statistically he is a slam dunk Hall of Famer. He's one of the greatest postseason pitchers of all time, but out of respect for him, if a man's asking not to be on the ballot, I'm not going to vote for him. Um, So just to get that out of the way. And then, of course, with Omar Vizcal, um, again, in case you can't tell, I'm a big wins above replacement guy. And of the position players on the ballot um, who have already gotten that 5% vote, he's the second lowest, 45.6 wins above replacement. I mean, he just did not do enough with the bat. Now, if he does get in, it's kind of like that Ozzie Smith archetype, a dude who was a consistent hitter, but not a fantastic one and never really was a great hitter. Um, as a matter of fact, his OPS plus is Uh, pretty low for his career, standing at 82. So he was literally 18% worse than the average hitter at his position. Um, But again, how could you not put in the greatest fielder of all time, essentially, at the shortstop position in the MLB? And that's the argument for him, largely. He's at 50% this past year. Now with the rumors, you're expected to see him drop again. This will be the second year in a row that his percentage will drop. So uh, I expect him to not make it in, although I do think there's a decent argument for him, considering he's such a great fielder. But for me, the off the field stuff is what cuts it for me. Otherwise, he'd be a guy I'd vote in because you really need everything to align perfectly, in my opinion, off the field and on the field. If you're going to make it in with only 45.6% or 45.6 wins above replacement. And, you know, the only thing you're really arguing for is that you were a great fielder because he was definitely a below average hitter. With that being said, let's get into the guys I have left. Now, this is my number five guy on the ballot, mind you. So I'm putting this dude above other guys on this ballot, five other people to be specific. So I need your reaction on this one. My fifth guy on this ballot, I think an underrated one and a new one to the ballot, Joe Nathan. I want Joe Nathan in the Hall of Fame. If Billy Wagner's getting these votes, I think Joe Nathan needs these votes too. Another underrated guy because of his position and because of the feel of his career. I think he's incredibly underrated and I think he is a relief pitcher for the ages. And I think with Joe Nathan, he's a guy, and maybe it's just psychological with me, and this is probably why it's good I don't have a vote in the Hall of Fame. I don't fear Joe Nathan as much as I feared Billy Wagner, if that makes sense. And no, I didn't grow up watching Billy Wagner, but seeing highlights and seeing how filthy his stuff was. Billy Wagner was not the hardest throwing guy. Joe Nathan can kind of sling it in there. But based on the results, that's what I'm talking about in terms of fear, not in terms of how hard they would throw. But I don't know. 
I don't know if I would put Joe Nathan in just yet. I'm curious to get your take then on Jonathan Papelbon, and I guess you'll get to that later on. But Joe Nathan's definitely up there. He's eighth all-time in saves, so pretty dang close to Dennis Eckersley. He finished with 390. I just pulled up the list. I had it on me because I was talking about Billy Wagner. But Joe Nathan, he's close for me. I don't know. I've, I don't know if I would put him in the Hall of Fame just yet because I don't think he was – the elitist of the elite or the elitist of the elite in terms of, of, of closing. And I guess that would bring up Craig Kimbrell. Obviously he's, he's still playing, but he's just five saves behind him, and he'll pass him. And Craig Kimbrell likely, I think will be a hall of famer. We'll see, but I'm curious to get your take now on Jonathan Papelbon. If we move on, I'm sure you'll touch on it, but I would leave Joe Nathan off for now, but I'm definitely open to it just because like you said, it's a criminally underrated position. Right. Yeah. And, and two points before we move on to the bottom half of my ballot. Um, you know, first of all, Papelbon, I think, was another guy similar to the level of Joe Nathan. But that's where I kind of draw the line. He uh, probably had a better Hall of Fame feel to his career, but wins above replacement wise. He doesn't even crack the top 10 almost um, for relief pitchers. And to me, you need to be talking um about statistically speaking that you're, you're, you know, with some of the best. And so, although I think it's uh, incredibly close, that is where I draw the line. Um, But here's, here's my second point with Joe Nathan, before I get into the bottom half of this ballot, this is going to be a statistic you won't expect. So Joe Nathan, his war seven, which is his seven year peak, the peak uh, length that all players use for judging how good they were in the peak of their career. His war peak is 19.4. Trevor Hoffman's war seven was 19.1. Joe Nathan had a stronger peak than Trevor Hoffman. What are your immediate thoughts on that? Cause that was a statistic I was not expecting to see. And that's my main argument for why I think Joe Nathan is a hall of famer. And that certainly definitely can validate your argument. Cause it's, it's, no secret that Trevor Hoffman is one of the best closers of all time. Obviously he's right up there with Mariano Rivera, about 50 saves off of each other. Moe's the best one of all time. Trevor Hoffman, generational talent in San Diego for quite some time. I actually have a uh, a bobblehead of him. It was Trevor Hoffman bobblehead night when I went to a game in San Diego. So there's my little connection with him, but that definitely would strengthen his case. And it definitely, you know, validates your point on putting him in because anytime you, you trump Trevor Hoffman on a, on a stat like that, it certainly will help your case and it certainly can get writers attentions and it's certainly gotten your attention as well. So, yeah, like I said, I think Joe Nathan, he's, he's a guy that would be in the conversation just because of the numbers that he has put up and, and with how underrated the closing position is um, in terms of hall of fame ballots. Absolutely. Now going into two guys I have left that I would say are controversial, but definite Hall of Famers for me. Um, The second one is Andrew Jones. I think this dude's case is pretty self-explanatory. To me, he's a Hall of Famer. The only stat that stands out to me that doesn't really help out that much with him is a 254 career batting average, but his career OPS plus is still above average at 111. Um, But look, if you tell someone that the greatest fielding center fielder of all time, because he has 10 gold gloves, um, and he was a silver slugger, not to mention, if you tell someone that the greatest center fielder of all time 
also hit 434 home runs, would you not vote that person in the Hall of Fame? So simply put, you know, despite the batting average, despite kind of a lackluster feel to his career and not much longevity either at at 17 years at a position that's been very demanding for longevity in the past couple of inductions, especially with a guy like Ken Griffey, I still think if you tell someone, hey, the greatest fielding center fielder of all time also hit 434 home runs, how would you not want to put him in the Hall of Fame? So that's my argument for him. Of course, he's sub 2,000 hits, so he would be one of the first center fielders in the Hall of Fame under 2,000 hits. He had 1,933 for his career. But again, the glove, the the power, I think that's kind of self-explanatory. My number six guy is going to be a little controversial, but arguably a similar archetype to a guy like Andrew Jones. It's Bobby Abreu. I think he's a, a guy who deserves a serious look. He was a 128 OPS plus hitter for a career. His wins above replacement is nearly average for his position at right field in the Hall of Fame. Um, he didn't have great power, 288 for a career, but he had a great Hall of Fame feel to his portion of the career with Philly. Um, so if you ask a guy who was an LA Angels fan, maybe even a Yankees fan or a Phillies fan, you could say, yeah, Bobby Abreu was a standout guy for the Phillies or the Yankees or the Angels. Um, again, do I think he's a slam dunk Hall of Famer? No. Um, but I do think he's a, he's borderline and he was a great hitter for a long amount of time. He played 18 years, um, you know, nearly 19. And he was a stand up dude for a long amount of time. That's all you could ask for to be a borderline Hall of Famer. So I do think as a serious case. Now, my bottom three is where it gets kind of controversial. Um, my number seven guy is going to be Tory Hunter. Um, I think Tory Hunter is a similar archetype to, to Andrew Jones, too. He had decent power and a really, really great glove. Um, I think, honestly, especially the glove, glove is, is what you ask for for a guy like Tory Hunter. I mean, who could forget when he robbed Barry Bonds in that All-Star game, you know? Um, and Barry Bonds tipped his cap to him. I don't think Barry Bonds would have tipped his cap to him if he didn't think that dude was a future Hall of Famer. But Tory Hunter is one of the greatest fielders in center field of all time, next to Andrew Jones, in my opinion. After that, I think you and I stand pretty similar in this. Um, I'll go straight to my number 10 guy, Jimmy Rollins. I think he's a borderline dude. But, you know, if you look at his career in Philadelphia, he's the greatest shortstop in Philly's history. Hard to argue that you could say that he doesn't deserve a serious look, although I wouldn't say he's quite a Hall of Famer yet. Back to my number nine spot. I think this dude had a little bit stronger of a case than Jimmy Rollins, and you're probably going to like this. It's big Tex. I think Mark Teixeira had great power, and he was a decent glove over at first base. And I think he's an all-time Yankee great, and I think he deserves a serious look. I like your take there, and actually that's going to segue brilliant, uh, brilliantly into my next point. You know, remember, I, I took Manny Ramirez off because you did kind of call me out. I was kind of in the middle of Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez, and I said, you know what, I got to stick to my guns. I took Alex Rodriguez off. I left Manny Ramirez on, and when you brought that up, I said, all right, I got to take him off. So I took him off. That leaves the 10th spot open, and actually who I was going to pick was Mark Teixeira. And... I'm sure you're going to say a lot of the same things. Mark Teixeira was one of the best defensive first basemen that I've ever seen. I mean, he was that good. He was that good. He's a switch hitting guy, had a lot of power. No, he was not the quickest guy out there, but in his prime, he was pretty dang good. And, you know, you you think about his Yankee years, most of those were towards the back half of his career. You think of the big hits he had with even the Braves back then in in 03 and 04, and and he's been multiple places as well. He's been to Atlanta. He spent half a season in L.A. with the Angels, and obviously he signed that seven-year deal with the Yankees. But when you look at the numbers that he has put up offensively, how good of a defender he was, and the fact that he was a switch hitter, I think that's 
personally, I'm a huge fan of switch hitters because it shows that you can do it on both sides of the ball. And obviously it shows that you're pretty talented at it too. You also can't forget about Mark Desher's Texas days as well. I mean, you think of, you th- and, and I said Atlanta in 0304. Atlanta was in 0708. Texas was earlier than that. But he's done it with multiple teams. He's a guy that actually has not been brought up all that much, but I think he does have a serious case to get in, especially when I take all the PED guys off of it. Look at the big hits he had in the postseason. And he, he had that huge postseason home run against the Twins in 09, I want to say, with the Yankees. And, and he had that big, big home run with the Braves. And I forget the year off the top of my head, but he's he's had some good years he's done it both sides of the plate he's done it in the field and he did it for a very long time and people forget late in his career too he he did it pretty banged up as well so i i, I do like mark to share on my ballot absolutely i think to share is kind of an exemplary way to close this segment and close out the podcast because he was a guy who was just a grinder and like you said man a freaking great fielder too. I think if you, again, if I kind of pull this example, you tell someone that there was a guy who stood at 6'3", 225, and he was a switch hitter, extremely athletic, although he wasn't the quickest. He was a five-time gold glover, three-time silver slugger, won the 09 World Series with the Yankees, and is considered, I guess, essentially an all-time Yankees great. Um, 126 OPS plus for his career, and he hit 409 home runs. That's a pretty dang good argument. Now, of course, when you dig into the other stats, he only hit 268 for a career, under 2,000 again for the hits at 1862, 50.6 war, which is pretty below average for the Hall of Fame. But again, you have to look at it from a certain perspective. This man was legit his entire career, a great fielder, maybe one of the greatest of all time at first base, and he hit 409 home runs. That's pretty dang good, and I think he deserves a serious look. Here's another stat I want to bring up real fast about him, real, real quickly. He was a five-time Gold Glove Award winner and a three-time Silver Slugger Award winner. It shows you can do it from both sides. Right. He he was great. I mean, uh, when's the last time you heard of a Silver Slugger that was a first baseman, um, but he was a switch hitter? You know, there's not a lot of switch hitting um, first baseman anymore. So I think he was a special archetype and definitely a guy to look at. And one last note, I love Annapolis, Maryland, and he's from there. Go Navy. (laughs) (laughs) all right Cole Bjorn you can take it away buddy yeah I mean I loved hearing all of it I loved hearing your takes uh all I know is uh some of the bigger names like Barry Bonds and Alex Reynolds and David Ortiz and I know that David Ortiz is one of those guys where he definitely has got to get in so that's most of my baseball knowledge I'd like to even get that up (laughs) more more as it goes on uh definitely learning stats particularly if I'm gonna ever eventually want to broadcast that but uh, gentlemen, uh, Carter and Kyle, it's been a pleasure to have you on again. Uh, I cannot wait until we are, can be on again to possibly discuss college basketball, uh, any other college football news or a- anything else that you even uh, want to, you know, uh, come on, on uh, come on for even basketball or some fighting. So it's been a pleasure to have you on. It's been a great uh, Friday night here as we're recording this here for 334 Sports. And I want to thank you both for being on. And I want to thank you all for listening uh and get ready for next week and get ready for the uh spring semester because it's going to be exciting time here for the podcast and uh from us so i'm colby on bergstrom joined alongside kyle marshak and carter hill again thank you for listening and have a great rest of your day